Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. He said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. The word of the Lord. All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. Uh, my name is Steve. I am uh, the lead pastor here, and um, I want to welcome you. We're working our way through a sermon series right now called Shadows of Christ. We're looking at the Bible as one big story, because that's really what it is. It's, it's a book of a lot of little stories that make up one big story, because there's one big storyteller. And, and he basically is working through all of the events of human history to tell a single story, um, that basically takes man's rebellion against him and turns it into a story of redemption and reconciliation. And at the heart of that story is a hero, a single hero that was promised from the beginning. We've looked at that, that God protected the line of all the way through until he, kind of, he could come. And, and of course, that's Jesus. 
And like any good story, you're going to find that there are foreshadowings of the events, of the themes, of the hero of the story, right? Any good story prepares you for the climax of the story where the central conflict is resolved. And what that means is that when we read through the Old Testament, we shouldn't be surprised to see shadows of the cross, to see shadows of the hero, that there are things that, that foreshadow the coming of Jesus. Because again, you have a single storyteller telling a single story, and at the heart of that story is a single hero. And so this morning, we find ourselves in an interesting passage where we're going to um, take a look at that through Abraham and Isaac. Before we get there, though, let me just pause and say, Happy Father's Day. Um, happy Father's Day. There we go. I just said it. Uh, we have a lot of new dads around here, which is very cool. A lot of young guys that are, that are tasting fatherhood for the first time or, or maybe have young kids. A um, lot of young families, which is awesome. A lot of excitement. We also have a few older guys around like me. And, uh, and so just happy Father's Day to all of you. Young guys, you're getting a small taste of the joy that comes with that little bundle, right? Uh, the joy of, of waking up at night and of changing diapers and of... Uh, as one author put it, you know, you're going to have your heart walking around outside of your body for the rest of your life, and you're going to have an open um, valve to your checkbook for the rest of your life. It's just going to happen. So congratulations and happy Father's Day. Um, I do want to acknowledge, I mean, this is, I know that this can also be, days like this can be hard. Father's Day, Mother's Day, um, family is... Um, God's greatest gift to us because it's a, a place of tremendous intimacy where you, nowhere else are you known and nowhere else do you know other people like family. And so there's the, it's the place of the greatest potential blessing. It's also the place of the greatest potential hurt. And I know that a lot of you are coming in on a day like today, and honestly, you are carrying hurts and disappointments, wounds, old wounds, and even current pain. And so um, even as I say Happy Father's Day, I want to acknowledge that um, sometimes family's hard. And, and so as we celebrate a day like today, let's celebrate the fact that we have a good heavenly father, an Abba, who has promised to step into the mess of our families and ultimately redeem them for the purpose of restoration. We have hope because we have a God who gives us hope. And that's really where we're going this morning. Uh, but let's, let's take a minute. And um, if you guys don't mind, let's just pray um, before we dig into our text. Father, I thank you for um, your heart and your character, that you really are the good father. Um, that as you reveal yourself, you call yourself and you've led us to call you Abba. Um, a term of endearment, a term of childhood affection, a term of trust. So Abba, I pray that uh, you will um, meet us here today, even as we unpack this difficult text, that you will open our eyes to see the beauty of your son, that you will open our eyes to our need um, and your solution of that need. And, and um, that we might be led to love you more. Um, God, I pray your blessing on our families and on our dads, that they might be men who live for your glory and walk in faith and lead their families for, for their families' good, who work in this community for the community's good, who are good representatives of your grace and redemptive work. God, bless. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, in honor of Father's Day, today we get to talk about a really crazy father-son story. Okay? Um, <laughs> we're going to talk about uh, a pretty nutty story about God basically commanding a father to murder his son. Um, it's pretty rough. This is a heavy text. It's kind of a heavy message. And um, we're going to try to honor the text as we unpack it. But I'm kind of warning you. 
Um, so we got a lot of things that we need to deal with here, a lot of questions that we need to get into. But at the heart of this story, at the heart of this story, is a lesson for us about idolatry. Now, when we talk about idolatry, I know to the modern ear, um, idolatry is a foreign-sounding concept, something that is kind of ancient, maybe a little primitive, nothing that obviously we as modern, progressive, um, uh, educated, enlightened individuals, we don't, we don't struggle with that stuff, right? That's, that's from a bygone age when they associated mysterious dark things with stones that fell out of the sky or shapes of wood, right? So we, we think of idols, we think of guys like this. This guy is at the uh, St. Louis Art Museum. I saw him and I fell in love. I just, he's wonderful. Um, He's just the angry little idol, you know? He's got that look like, how dare you not take me seriously, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's right there. And, and, but he's a real idol. I mean, that's, that's, that's the kind of thing that, that people, um, I don't know, associated uh, great power and influence with. So when we think about idolatry today, a lot of times we think about this. I mean, they're, just, they're, they're curiosities to us. They're interesting things. Maybe you think about American Idol, uh, which is also a curiosity and mildly interesting, you know? Um, I don't know. I don't know. But here's the deal, you guys. Idolatry is not a thing of human history. Idolatry is a thing of the human heart. Idolatry is not something that we've left behind in our past as we've moved into enlightenment. It is something that we have simply redefined. We are idolaters. Our hearts are idolatrous. And, and I'll unpack a little bit about why I say that. You may not be a follower of Christ. I don't know. I'm, I'm glad you're here if you, if you aren't. Um, it's a great place for you to ask questions and kind of explore what we're about. I'm going to kind of put my cards on the table, though, and let you know that, that I'm starting with the premise that we were, in fact, created by God in the image of God. And, and, and having been created in the image of God, we were created to share his attributes in a limited sense, not in a full sense, but, you know, of course, God is, is omniscient. He knows everything. Well, we don't know everything, but we know what it is to know, right? We are, we are omniscient. I don't know what the right word is there. We have the ability to think and to reason and to process, right? God's omnipresent. He's in all places at all times. Now, we're not omnipresent, but we are present, right? We, we share the attributes of God in a limited sense. And, and there's a very powerful, very real attribute of God that is experienced in family, and that is the attribute of community. Scripture teaches us that, that God is one God, three persons, a mystery at the heart of the Godhead that really doesn't make a lot of sense. The more you think about it, the more your head hurts, right? If you're too comfortable with it, you've just forgotten how crazy of an idea it is. Three persons, one God, right? A single God made up of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But what that mystery tells us is that the heart of God is this idea of community. God has forever been in relationship. The Father loving and, and, and being loved by the, the Son and the Spirit, the Son rejoicing in and, and knowing and being known by the Father and the Spirit is this eternal dance of community. See, God didn't create mankind because he was lonely or bored or needed somebody else to talk to. He created mankind because there was so much of him that he wanted to create something in his own image that we might live in the overflow of his joy, of, of, of his presence, of his community. God didn't create us because he needed us. He created us to need him. And that's why we're worshipers. Because we were created to pour ourselves out continually to God. That's what worship is. When we come before something and we pour ourselves out to it, we pour our love out to it, our affection out to it, we sacrifice to it, our money and our time, we give it things. But we never worship without expecting something in return. 
We're all worshiping all the time. And whatever it is we're worshiping, we're looking to get something back out of. We pour ourselves out to something with the expectation that it's going to pour back into us in a very deep and real way. So that's why we don't, you know, we talk about going to worship, right? Worship's not something that you schedule on your calendar. It's not something you go do on Sunday morning. Worship is something you're always doing because you were created to always worship. You're always pouring yourself out with the expectation of getting something back. So the question is, what are we worshiping? What are we pouring ourselves out to? Because of Genesis 3, where mankind rebelled against God and our relationship, our shalom, our peace with God has been broken, our worshipers have been broken. That part of us that naturally came into the presence of God and, and simply poured ourselves out to God in relationship, seeking to receive back from God the benefits of relationship, has been redirected to other things. So we're idolaters. We look to things that aren't God to be God for us. We look to things that aren't God to do for us what only God can do. And it, and it could be anything. Our money, our, our, our talents, people's opinion of us, our performance, our families. Um, our families were uh, a gift to us by God for us to experience that characteristic of God that we call community. It's the tightest, most intimate form of, of human community. Right? I mean, nobody else knows what you look like at 5 a.m. than the people who live with you. Right? Nobody else knows what you're like when you wake up on the wrong side of the bed and you're grumpy. No one else knows. Right? They know what you look like before you put your makeup on. They know what you look like before you're able to put your game face on. They know what you look like when you feel like a failure. They know what you look like at all of those times because they're with you more than anyone else. They know you in a way that no one else knows you. It's a tremendous blessing, but it's also a tremendous challenge. So this morning, um, followers of Christ, we're going to unpack this crazy story. We're going to talk about Abraham and Isaac, but we're also going to talk about God's desire to root the idols out of our hearts. And I'm going to let you know at the outset that this is not going to be an easy or painless process because we love our idols. The reason we pour ourselves out to them is because we have chosen to love them. They just break our hearts, and we end up destroying the very idols that we love. And God wants to free us from that. And so we're going to get into that. Um, all right, Abraham, let's unpack this and take a look and see how this plays out in the story. A lot of difficult things we're going to work our way through here, but let me help set the stage. Abraham um, had a son named Isaac, and we talked about this last week. He had married Sarai with the intention of, of course, having a son, uh, probably more than one, having a, a clan uh, but that firstborn son was, of course, a very precious gift um, in that culture because that, that firstborn son, as we'll talk about later, came to represent the embodiment of blessing for the family. And they couldn't have a son. They were, they were infertile. They were, they were not um, able to conceive, and, and they waited 75 years. He was 75 years old and, and were probably humanly giving up hope at that point when God shows up and is like, all right, hmm, you're going to have a son. I'm going to bless you with a son. Um, travel. Just go start walking, and eventually you're going to have a kid. And so Abram followed God and, and had to wait 25 more years before he was able to have his son. Right? God waited until he was 100 years old. Sarah was 99. Uh, waited until it was physically impossible. Waited until all hope outside of the promise of God was dead, but inside the promise of God 
was perfectly uh, um, realistic and, and alive because God is the God who can restore and, and give life to the dead. And, and so he had his son at 100 years old. And, and I can imagine what joy he had as he raised Isaac. Um, I, you know, those of you who have had the blessing of being parents, you know um, there really is a sense in which your heart walks outside of your body. You come to love these little creatures, even as they're sucking the life out of you. You, 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 you gladly give your life to them. You know, it's like there's something powerful in, in the bond. And, 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 and I can imagine that Abraham was, was um, stuck to Isaac and Isaac was stuck to Abraham, right? I mean, there's a, probably a sense in which Isaac never left his side. All right, take a look at verses 1 and 2. And after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the, on the mountains, which I shall tell you. All right, that's a crazy command. We'll get to that in a sec. But before we get to the command, I want you to pay attention to the way God talks about Isaac. Okay, he doesn't just say, hey, Abraham, go grab your kid and go over there. He doesn't say, hey, Abraham, just grab Isaac, call Isaac. And notice what he says. I mean, there's this huge emphasis. Go grab your your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Even as he's directing Abraham to go grab Isaac, he's identifying one of the central themes of why this is happening. Abraham loves Isaac, which is perfectly Predictable and acceptable. Let me ask you something. Is it possible to love someone too much? Just think about it. Do you think that it's possible to love someone too much? And, I, and if I was to ask, somebody would be like, yeah. Yeah. Somebody would be like, no. It's a hard question. It's actually kind of a trick question. Let me ask you something. Can you love your child too much? Can a child love, can a parent love their child too much? Can God love his children too much? Here's the challenge, you guys. Um, there's two answers, or are two answers to this question. And we're going to have to unpack both. It is possible to love someone too much, but the challenge is that when you love them too much, the thing that you call love is actually becoming less and less love. If your love of God is right, you can't love people out of that love too much. But if your love of God is wrong, the thing that you call love is actually going to become something quite different. It's going to become something that is more controlling, more manipulative, more defensive, more protective, more dangerous than love because it's going to be motivated by selfishness. And it's going to be motivated by self-protection. See, love, by its very nature, when you look at biblical love, biblical love is about giving for another's good regardless of how it affects you. Uh, Biblical love is about loving someone for their good even if that means it's not for your good, right? So for a parent, biblical love says, I love you in such a way that I want you to become an autonomous, independent follower of Christ whatever God would lead you to do, whatever he would lead you to be, whatever that would, in the end, cost me or give me. 
Selfish love says, my dream for you is more important than God's dream for you. Selfish love says, I need you in ways that keep me from freeing you in ways. See, the the answer, can you love your children too much, is no and yes. No, not if you're loving them out of the love of God, yes. If you're loving them in the place of the love of God. What do I mean by that? Here's the deal. When we look to our family, as parents, when we look to our kids or to our spouse, to do for us what only God can do, we are, in fact, putting a weight on them that they simply cannot sustain. You're going to put a God weight on them and say to them, you're the one that must ultimately meet my deepest needs. You're the one that has to make me feel worthwhile. You're the one that has to make me feel secure. You're the one that has to make me feel like a success. You're the one that has to do for me what only God can do. And that human relationship simply cannot sustain that kind of weight. That's idolatry. And what we're doing is we're taking a gift of God, family, and we're treating it as if it were God. We're looking to the gift and and looking for it to give us what only the giver of the gift can give. We're taking a good thing and we're turning it into an ultimate thing. See, idolatry, we never take things that are ugly and turn them into idols. We never take something that's evil or ugly, even though idolatry itself is evil and ugly. What we do is we take a good thing and we look to it to become the ultimate thing. Instead of a good gift that we can enjoy in freedom, we turn it into an ultimate thing that now we anchor our identity on. We we anchor our well-being on. And it simply cannot sustain that kind of weight. And that's why idols always disappoint. That's why idolatry never fills the void and always drives you to deeper and really uh, more desperate idolatry. Because the idols themselves can never deliver on the promises. They can never bear the weight or give what we seek, and we end up destroying the very things we love as we seek to be fulfilled in ways that they cannot provide. So Abraham loved his son. And his love of his son was healthy and good and normal and right, but it was in danger of becoming something other than love. It was in danger of becoming worship. It was in danger of him looking at his son and saying, now that I finally got my son, my son is more important to me than God. The presence of my son is my good, my ultimate good, my absolute good. My, my future is completely dependent on his well-being. Instead of recognizing that God, the giver of the gift, is the one that secures all those things. So God is going to free him from this. How does he propose to do it? Well, he's got kind of a crazy plan. He's going to have Abraham kill Isaac. That's his plan. Your love is in danger of turning into idolatry. So what am I going to do? I'm going to have you kill him. Um, Let's be honest. This is kind of crazy, you guys. This is kind of crazy. This is one of those stories in the Bible that people read along and they're like, seriously, you believe this stuff? (laughs) Right? I mean, this is, think about it. It's crazy, right? I'm going to tell you what, if a voice talks to you and tells you to start killing people, I recommend you ignore it. It's not God, right? So how do we say it's God here? How can this voice in this context 
make any sense. Well, I think it'll be helpful for us to understand the cultural context. Um, There was an idea that we now call primogeniture that put a lot of emphasis on the firstborn of the family. It's an emphasis that we carry. There's a shadow of it in our culture today, but really it's just a shadow. We don't, we, we're such an individualistic culture that their idea of community identity is, is quite foreign to us. But in this culture, the way they looked at it, the, the idea of primogeniture was this, that the firstborn son embodied the family. And that's why the firstborn son got the primary blessing of the family. So when the, when the dad passed away, the firstborn son basically became the arbiter of the estate, right? He became the one who got the lion's share of the estate. He's the one that distributed it for the good of the rest of the family. He's the one that managed it for the family. The firstborn son was recognized as the legal representative of the family. When they went into the city gate, when they did business, the firstborn son represented the, the will of the family, the choices of the family, um, and ultimately the wealth and... and um, movement of the family. Now, the downside is this. The firstborn son was also responsible for the family. The firstborn son was the one who bore the weight of any debt of the family. And before God, the firstborn son was responsible for the sin of the family. See, when when God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, Isaac, uh, Abraham recognizes that what God is doing is basically calling in the family debt. What God is doing is saying, look, man, debt's due. Time to pay up. This was not a foreign idea in that culture or, or really in, in most world cultures. Now, today, we look at that and we're like, are you kidding me? How can one person truly be responsible for the debt of another person? We're incredibly individual, individualistic today. Right? And so everybody's responsible for their own actions. We completely ignore, for the most part, um, the web of relationships and how they interact, right? Everybody's responsible for their choices and their actions. Most of the world cultures through most of history have recognized that that is not true, that there is, in fact, um, a group identity that actually supersedes the individual identity, and, and there are leaders or representatives of those groups that are responsible for the actions of those groups. The firstborn son was such. We see this in, in the... Uh, book of Exodus, when, when God comes to deliver the nation of Israel out of Egypt. You guys probably heard about this story. God shows up and 10 times sends Moses in to say, let my people go. And 10 times the Pharaoh's like, no. And so God sends 10 plagues. Each plague after Pharaoh refuses to comply with the request of God, right? The final judgment is that all the firstborn in the nation of Egypt die. The angel of death comes in and takes the life of the firstborn. That was not arbitrary. That was not random. That was God saying, I am now pulling in your debt. You have rebelled against me, and as a result, I am bringing judgment. And by judging the firstborn, I judge the entirety. The firstborn was the one who represented the family. And so Abraham recognized that in being called to sacrifice Isaac, it was because, in fact, of his own shortcomings and his own sin. Isaac represented the family. So I want you to see that Abraham is, in fact, not acting in blind faith here. This is not just Abraham saying, well, this makes no sense, but okay, I'll do it. In his context, it made sense. We may not agree with it. We may not like it culturally. We may look at that and say, well, that was the stupidest thing ever. But the point is that it made sense in his context. This was faith informed by reason, not just blind faith. 
He was, in fact, doing what made sense culturally and in the context of how God had laid out um, the responsibilities of the family dynamics. And we know that. I mean, here's the deal. If, if God had shown up and said, hey, I want you to kill Sarah, I don't think he would have done it. In fact, he'd probably be like, are you God? <laughs> There's no context in which that command would have made sense. There, there was no relationship to Sarah and the family debt. And so he was, in fact, acting um, out of reason. Now, he was also acting out of a, a deep tension. And that tension we see played out a little bit in the story. And that tension is this. While God is calling in the debt, which is justice, he's also promised blessing, which is grace. He's calling in the debt. You owe a debt, and it's time to pay, but he's promised blessing. Now, think about it. Both of those come to a head in Isaac. Isaac is the firstborn, is the one who's responsible for the debt of sin of the family. The rebellion, all the acts of of sin against God are coming to a head in Isaac because he is the one who is responsible. Even though he didn't commit it, he is the one who is in that position of holding uh, the position of representation. But all the promises of God also come to a head in Isaac. He's the son of promise. God has promised to bless the entire world through this kid. He promised Isaac, Abraham, that, that he would have as many kids as the stars of, the, of heaven and, and of the sands of the seashore, and that that blessing would come through Isaac. So we see this, this tension of a demand for justice and a promise of grace, and it's coming to a head in the per- person of Isaac. And so Abraham has to move forward in this tension. And it's this very tension that ultimately allows him to move forward, strengthened by faith, moving toward hope in a hopeless situation. Now, we get a little glimpse into Abraham's heart in verse 5. Now, remember, when we read the Old Testament, this is a different kind of genre, different kind of writing that we're used to. We're used to novelistic writing today. Um, We don't get 16 pages of description about how Abraham felt in this moment, right? That's not how the Hebrew scriptures read. What ends up happening is we get the details that are essential to the narrative, the insights that are necessary for the point, but, but there's not a lot of filling out uh, of, the, of the how people felt and, and all that sort of stuff. So we have to pause a little bit. Uh, there's plenty here for us to, to kind of see that. In verse 5, Abraham said to the young men, he, he's traveled now away from home um, to the mountains of Moriah, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and, what's that word right there, you guys? I and the boy will go over there and worship. I come again to you. Is he lying? Is he lying? Is he looking at his, he's like, I don't want to really tell you what God told me to do here. (laughs) So I'm just going to lie. We're going to go over there and worship. Or is that how he actually sees it? Remember, worship is the outpouring of joy, of love, of adoration, of gratitude to the one that ultimately is able to give you everything you desperately need. I don't think Abraham's lying. I think he recognizes that even in this hard place, God is still the giver of good gifts. I and the boy are going to go over there and worship. Even as he obeys this incredibly hard command, his obedience is flowing out of a heart of worship. It's flowing out of a heart that recognizes that God is the giver of all good things and the source of of all joy. We get a glimpse into Abraham's heart, even in the agony of obedience 
there is a joy and an adoration for the one that he's obeying. He recognizes that God, the giver of the good gift, is also the one who purposes to give grace through that gift. I don't think that minimizes his agony, though. I don't think that minimized his father's um, uh, pain, right, as they, they go. Think about this, you guys. Abraham had spent a good portion of his adult life walking, right? God showed up and was like, I'm going to bless you, now go, right? Where am I supposed to go? That way. So Abraham went, right? He walked and he walked and he walked. I'm guessing he had never taken a journey that felt as far as his walk up that mountain. He takes the fire in one hand, he takes the knife in the other, and he loads the wood on his son's back. Isaac carries the wood of his own sacrifice. And as they're ascending, the only glimpse into their conversation we have is the one question from Isaac. See, Isaac was very familiar with burnt offerings. All of Israel was very familiar with this idea that that they were sinners before God. They had rebelled against God, and because of their sin, there was a consequence, and that consequence was death. Animal sacrifices reminded them on a regular basis that they owed such a great debt that they ultimately could not pay. They, they, there was a, a debt of justice that one day would come due. And Abraham looked at his son and said, God will provide his own lamb. What desperately painful words of faith. I don't know how this is going to turn out. I don't know where this is going, but I will obey the God that I trust because I trust his heart. I will follow him and God will provide his own lamb. Even if that's my son. Let's just read what happened in verses 9 and 10. They came to the place where God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac. This is one place where I am very grateful, honestly, for the brevity, the conciseness of words. He bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. How could Abraham make that climb? How could Abraham take the son of his delight and bind him and put him on that wood? How could Abraham do something that was so radically opposed to every instinct in him? You want to know how? He wasn't driven by his ability to make sense of life. He was driven by his ability to trust the God who could. He trusted that there was something that God could do here that was greater than anything he could understand. In fact, the writers of the New Testament put it this way. This is from Hebrews chapter 11. We'll put it on the screen so that you can read along. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises, that's Abraham, the promises of blessing through Isaac, was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. That's radical trust. 
You're demanding justice. You've promised grace. I trust your heart. Even if that means you have to raise my son from the dead. See, when we're rooted in faith, it allows us to hope in hopeless situations. When we know the power of God and we trust the heart of God, it allows us to stand firm in God even when everything around us doesn't make sense. And it allows us to obey even when it doesn't feel right. Abraham trusted that God would enact justice, but he would also keep his promise to bless, even if that meant having to raise Isaac from the dead. He trusted God's heart and God's strength in the face of a hopeless situation. And we still know what happens. Take a look at verses 11 and 12. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, don't lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So God interrupts and says, now I know you fear me. You think God had to put him through that to find that out? You think it's like, you know, Abraham, I, I'm just kind of curious. Huh. I'm kind of wondering, you know, I gave you this gift, but I'm, I'm a little worried. You might love the gift more than you love me, so let's find out. I'll give you a test. You think that's what's going on here? You ever notice that there's a lot of times in Scripture where God asks questions? Isn't that weird? I mean, God's like omniscient, right? Like knows everything. Why would he ask questions? He shows up in the garden. Adam and Eve are hiding. Where are you? Right? And then they come out. Well, what is this you have done? Don't you know? See, God doesn't ask questions because he needs to find out. He asks questions because there's things we need to find out. He's inviting, in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, he's inviting Adam and Eve to consider the consequences of their behavior, to confess and trust him in spite of their sin. He's, he's inviting them back into relationship by questioning or asking them questions that provoke certain answers. See, God didn't test Abraham to find out about Abraham's heart. He tested Abraham to strengthen his heart and to show Abraham something about his own heart. God puts us through trials, not to find out how we're going to come out on the other side. He puts us through trials so that we might come out on the other side different than we went in. He is shaping us and molding us, and he is a good father. He is willing to put us through discomfort in order to make us well. Like a good physician, he is willing to make the right incisions, the right painful moves to ultimately move us into greater blessing. The question for us is whether we're going to trust his hand while he's doing it. Are we going to trust his heart and his power in the same way Abraham trusted and obeyed? So how does God enact justice? God had called in the debt of the family, right? I mean, that's happened. The debt's been called in. The debt is paid as God provides a substitute. Take a look at verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. God had provided a substitute, a temporary substitute. That's why the animal sacrifices had to continue. Every morning, every evening, there were sacrifices made for the sins of the people. They were unending because the, those sacrifices could not ultimately take away the guilt of the sin. 
but they could offer a temporary covering until the ultimate payment came. God would provide his own lamb. And that's where we see the shadows of Christ throughout this story. We see the shadows of Christ in the, in the, in the beloved son, Isaac. I mean, what loaded language where he says, take your son, your beloved son, right? That, that phrase we see repeated throughout the New Testament. John 3.16, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, his beloved son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We see in the image of the father taking his son up the mountain, a shadow of the father leading his son on mission, right? We see in the shadow of Isaac carrying the wood of his own sacrifice, the shadow of Christ carrying his own cross and sacrifice. We see in him moving up the mountains of Moriah, which are the mountains surrounding Israel, the image of Christ going up in the same mountains to be sacrificed. We see the image of Christ in the ram caught by his horns in his thicket. The thicket, of course, is this bramble area where he got caught, loaded with symbolism. Genesis 3, where God unpacks the consequences of man's rebellion. He looked at Adam and said, Now the ground will bear to you thorns and thickets because of what you have done. It will no longer yield pleasantly to the hand of the steward. It will rise up against you, representative of their rebellion against God. The ram is caught in the thicket, which is representative of sin, by his horns, which is representative of his power. See, Christ was not a victim on the cross. He wasn't caught by his weakness. He was caught by his strength, the strength of his commitment to follow his father on mission, to be obedient to the true father and actually go all the way to sacrifice as the true substitute, the one who would ultimately take the place, not just of Abraham's family, but of all of our families, the firstborn of all creation. That's what scripture calls him. Not because he was the first one born, but because he takes the place of the representative head for all of us. He took our debt and died in our place. Where's Christ in this story? He's all over it. God was in freeing Abraham's heart, foreshadowing how he would free all of us, both in forgiveness and in new empowerment. Here's the deal, you guys. The way he delivered Isaac is the way he delivers us. Not through the sacrifice of a ram, a temporary sacrifice, but through the sacrifice of his son. The perfect substitute who took our place in sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We are freed and forgiven through the sacrifice of Christ. But God didn't send Jesus just to forgive us. He also sent him to free us. God wants to not only give us forgiveness for the sins we've committed, our rebellion, all the bad things and all the wrong things. He wants to free us from the ongoing control and power of the idols that are robbing us of joy and robbing him of his glory. In the same way, he freed Abraham through the sacrifice of Isaac. He wants to free us through the sacrifice of his son. So let me ask you something. What are the idols that drive your life? What are the idols that are tied to your soul? What are the things that you love? But not in a godlike way, in a selfish way. 
What are the gifts God has given you that you look to to fulfill the, the things that only the giver of the gift can fulfill? Let me give you some questions that will help you out. What do you need to be happy? What is invisibly tied to your emotional well-being so that when it is promised, you are immediately filled with joy and happiness? And if it's ever threatened, you become angry, depressed, frustrated, unpleasant. What is it that you give your money and your time to effortlessly? What do you sacrifice? We always sacrifice to our idols. Time and money being some of the two greatest resources we have. What, what, what does your money just flow effortlessly out of your hand to? And what does your time flow effortlessly to? You don't even think about it as a sacrifice because you're so eager to give it because you think you're going to get something so wonderful back. You're like, well, Steve, I don't give my money to anything. It's all in the bank. That's what you're giving your money to. (laughs) This idea that if you can just build that bank account up, then you'll eventually be secure. You'll eventually reach some plateau. You'll eventually receive. What is it? What is it that you give your resources to? You make sacrifices so freely to. Here's the deal, guys. Anything can be an idol in our Anything can be an idol in our lives. You can look to your job, your success in your job, your prestige in your job, your corner office, how people talk about you. You can look to your reputation. You can look to your family, the well-being and success of your family, right? All you got to do is watch a lot of dads at Little League games to know that that's absolutely true. (laughs) When my child succeeds, I am great. And if anybody gets in the way, right? your reputation, your performance, your hobby, sex, influence. See, all of these things are good things. These are all things that God has given us as gifts, but they become distorted and perverted when they become idolatrous desires in our heart because we're looking for them to do for us what only God can do. What, follow those paths, you guys. Follow those paths, and they will show you the idols of your heart. Or at least begin. Because here's the deal, you guys. God wants to set you free. God wants to set you free for your good, but God also wants to set you free for His glory. <laughs> Scripture says that our God is a jealous God. That doesn't mean that He's peevish or that He's insecure. It means that He doesn't share His glory. He created us to be worshipers and he created us to worship him, the source of all that is glorious so that we can receive from him all that is good. God is jealous for our hearts. He is jealous for our affections. He is jealous for things to be the way he created them to be. He will free you from your idols and he will lead you to tear them down. And that's gonna be a hard and sometimes very painful process. Sometimes it's going to feel like you are walking up Mount Moriah with Isaac. So how are you going to have the strength to make that walk? How are you going to have the courage to make that sacrifice? And of course, you guys know, we're we're not talking here. That's a unique command in all of Scripture. What we're talking about is you taking these idolatrous desires 
and being willing to take your idol and put it on the altar and say to God, I need you more than I need this. You can give me what this never can. How are you going to have the courage to do that? I think it's only going to come as you hear the very words that God spoke to Abraham on top of that mountain. God, speaking to Abraham, said, Now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Let's translate those words to now being post-cross as we look back at the great sacrifice God has made to win our hearts. Now, I, now we know that God loves us, seeing that he has not withheld his son, his only son, from me. See, the cross can persuade you to love and trust God in ways that nothing else can. As you fill your vision with that incredible display of the love of God, it will lead you to trust the God who made that display. It will lead you to follow him and be willing to obey him because you will trust his heart even if you don't understand his hand. You will be able to say, now I know that you, God, are for me. You have not withheld your son, your only son. And whatever it is you ask of me is for your glory and my good. And I trust you to fulfill me in ways that nothing else in this life can.